Amen. You may be seated. Friends, we are on a journey. The season of Lent is a familiar journey for some of us. We join Christian pilgrims from across time and place in journeying with Jesus, listening in on his conversations, observing his interactions, witnessing his miracles, and accompanying him through the events of this week, Holy Week. The stories and movements are all too familiar to some of us. We know the journey ahead. Our feet and our hearts know the paths well. So when we get to Holy Week, we tend to rush. The journey is almost over. We want to sprint this last leg. We're eager to wave our branches with the crowds on this Palm Sunday to taste the bread and the cup with Jesus' disciples on Maundy Thursday, to sit in the darkness of Good Friday, at least for just a moment, until we flick the lights back on and roll out the Hallelujah Chorus on Easter Sunday. After all, it's not like we're waiting to find out how things end this week. As if the events of Holy Week are a surprise, what is going to happen to Jesus? The church knows and proclaims the good news of Easter Sunday throughout the year. So why belabor things? Well, like so much of faith, Lent is about the journey just as much as about the destination. We need the journey of this season and this week to help us see Jesus and ourselves more fully. We trod these familiar paths over and over again because each time we find something new, something profound, something holy, something transformative. So, this week, this holy week, we're invited to slow down, to take one step at a time to enter in and take notice, to catch a glimpse of how this familiar ground is holy, and to take off our shoes as we recognize the divine burning amidst the familiar. So today we're gonna do just that. In what can be a frenzied start to a whirlwind week, we are going to slow down and follow in Jesus' unhurried steps, seeing what we may discover about his journey and ours. So let's pray together as we enter in. Holy God, word made flesh, we come to your scripture again today open to being surprised. So silence our agendas, we pray. Banish our assumptions, cast out our casual familiarity, confound our expectations. Clear the cobwebs from our ears, penetrate the corners of our hearts with this word. We know that you can. We pray that you might, and we wait with great anticipation that you will. Amen. Friends, our first scripture reading today comes from the Gospel according to Luke chapter 19. You're invited to listen and to enter into the story with all of your senses. If it's helpful to you, close your eyes. Imagine the scene, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the feels as you enter in. 
Our first reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 35. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany, at a place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead, saying, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Friends, what kind of a traveler are you? Do you plan every detail in advance or take things as they come? Do you meticulously curate your itinerary to make sure you hit all the major highlights? Or are you a free spirit? keeping your schedule loose, flexible, letting the experiences, the adventures, the opportunities find you? Do you pack light, assuming you could pick up whatever you might need on the way? Or do you stuff your bags with things for every eventuality? Do you opt for the travel insurance, splurge for the extra leg room? Do you stay with acquaintances whenever possible, close or distance, or need your own space? If you travel with others, do they have the same expectations as you, the same practices, the same hopes? The conversation came up recently among our pastoral team with varied responses. If it's any indication, here is a snapshot of how I travel. A binder filled with carefully researched uh, guidebook pages that I selected, cut out, three-hole punched, and then color-coordinated and labeled. I'm in good company, I uh, can easily imagine. And then there's the itinerary with uh, carefully prearranged lodging, travel plans, major activities, all prearranged and budgeted for in advance. Um, And then here is how my husband John travels. This is a stick figure cartoon that he drew of us straddling an airplane on our way to our trip. This was his contribution. So, It's oh so satisfying when we get to today's scripture passage and learn that once again, God is on my side in our family debates. Fun. Jesus and I, turns out, have similar traveling tendencies. Intentional, strategic, little left to chance. So I don't know whether or not Jesus had a three ring binder for his journey, but it probably wouldn't have been a bad idea. When we encounter him in our gospel text for today, he's been on extended journey from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. It is a long journey that takes him most of the book of Luke, from chapters nine all the way through 19. His journey has led him 
from the northern region of Galilee where he teaches crowds along the hillsides and is rebuked by the religious leaders in the city synagogues to the southern towns of Samaria and Judea where he heals the sick in body and spirit and again is rebuked by the religious leaders in the synagogues. And just before our text this morning, Jesus is in the southern city of Jericho, staying with the tax collector Zacchaeus. And Jericho is in a town next to the Dead Sea. And if Jesus had a guidebook, he would have known that it is well below sea level. It's the lowest permanently inhabited place on earth. Fun fact. It's an 18-mile ascent from Jericho to the holy city of Jerusalem, which is nestled in a valley basin between the surrounding ridges. So when we encounter Jesus today, he's nearing Jerusalem. His ascent, his journey is nearly over. It's a dramatic moment, a carefully curated moment in more ways than one. As Jesus nears Jerusalem, finally, he passes by the villages of Bethphage and Bethany, just a few miles to the east on a slope that we're told is called the Mount of Olives. It's only having ascended this ridge that an ancient traveler like Jesus would have finally seen the city of Jerusalem below. It was and is a beautiful vista point. But more than a pretty photo op, the Mount of Olives was theologically significant. This place mattered. According to the prophet Zechariah, it was here that God was expected to appear on the day of the Lord and become king over all the earth. The Mount of Olives was a destination not just for those passing through, but for a final resting place. Today, as then, the hillside is covered with graves. God's people crowded to be buried there, or they could be first in God's reception line in the last day. So Jesus arranges to enter Jerusalem from this intentional location, but it's also at an intentional time and an intentional way, as we find in our scripture passage today. As Jesus crested that Mount of Olives, he would have been part of a large throng of other travelers journeying to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival called Passover. This annual festival was a celebration of the ancient Hebrews' liberation from Egyptian bondage way, way back in their history. Just as the law instructed them, God's people had been remembering and observing this event since their exodus from Egypt decades ago. In fact, according to Luke, Jesus had already made this pilgrimage at least once when he was a young boy traveling with his parents there. Jesus was maybe remembering fond family memories or favorite festival traditions as he looked down on Jerusalem that day. But as celebratory as this festival was, it was also deadly serious. Celebrating the release of God's people from foreign oppression has political overtones of liberation and nationalism, and celebrated under Roman occupation, it was nothing short of revolutionary. Everyone, everyone was on high alert. The Roman governor Pilate pulled himself away from the normal beachside residence he lived in to come to town to keep the peace. 
Even Herod, the Roman tetrarch of the northern regions, made the pilgrimage to help extinguish any revolutionary sparks that might ignite. And the politicians weren't the only ones on edge. Even the religious leaders, the Pharisees who bridged the church and state, were on the lookout for any upstart, impassioned messiahs who might cause trouble. Jesus' journey to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives during the Passover was anything but coincidental, and neither were his transportation arrangements. A donkey, a young donkey, a young donkey borrowed without prior permission seems like a strange means of transit, even by the disciples' standards. But once again, Jesus seems to have done his research. The prophet Zechariah has promised God's people long ago that a king would come to Jerusalem riding on just such a donkey. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Look, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The donkey, borrowed from its owners or its lords in the Greek, is given to Jesus, the Lord, without contention. The Lord, these lords, these human lords, recognize the authority of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Friends, if in doubt that Jesus' journey is anything but intentional, let's review his itinerary one more time. He's journeying from the Mount of Olives, the seat of Israel's end time hope. He's journeying at the start of the Passover, the festival that celebrates God's overthrow of oppressive rule and the establishment of a new national identity. He's journeying on a donkey, a symbol of the coming king who would bring victory to God's people. Jesus's itinerary leaves nothing to imagination or coincidence. This is an intentional journey, a royal journey. But the question remains, a journey to what? If Jesus is a coming king, what kind of a king will he be? And to answer that, we must journey still further with Jesus. Amen. Amen. You want to sing it again? <laughs> yeah. So let me read the second part of our text. It comes out of Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, and I'll begin at verse 36. <clears throat> As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, 
order your disciples to stop it. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So think of it this way. The 80-mile journey that changed the world. The 80-mile journey that changed the world. What happened on that journey? The journey from Galilee to Jerusalem that culminated in drawing multitudes of disciples, multitudes of followers of Jesus, along with the crowds that came down this dusty road into Jerusalem, throwing their coats on the road as if this is a royal procession coming into the city. We get a little sense of what's going on when we see the quote that Luke is using from Psalm 118, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who is coming in the name of the Lord. Notice what Luke adds. Literally, it would read, blessed is the one who is coming, the king, in the name of the Lord. Luke wants us to know that Jesus is coming as the king. Other gospels include Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the son of David, and so forth. So why Jesus? What's going on? And how are we to understand this? Well, one of the things I would say is that this is really something that is expansive. This is a summary of the gospel. It is expansive. It is personal, it is communal, and it is societal, and it will change everything as we follow Jesus in this particular travel. So the travel narrative in Luke focuses on Jesus. When Jesus, the peaceful and triumphant uh, king, rides into Jerusalem with these new followers, these new people who are celebrating their king, they come in and celebrate the mighty works that they have seen and the teaching, this radical teaching that Jesus has given them along the way. And now they are there with all of these accolades of Jesus. Jesus is then the peaceable king, as as Michelle said, uh, quoting from Zechariah 9.9. But Jesus is also the sovereign savior. That is, again, referenced by Michelle, the Zacchaeus story. And at the end of the Zacchaeus story, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. And then he says, the son of man, self-reference, the son of man, came to seek and to save the lost. Already, Luke has called Jesus a savior in the birth uh, narratives, but now he is reminding us that he is the one who is saving and is the one who brings salvation. So that's the primary issue that's going on in in the text, in this uh, travel narrative. But the secondary issue is the issue of discipleship. And the two are so interconnected that we can't really have discipleship in the way that Jesus wants us to follow unless we know something about the king, unless we know something about the Jesus who we are following. And so in this particular text, we see something that's critically important for both our understanding of Jesus and our understanding of discipleship. It is both uh, individual and corporate. 
So let's look at it in that framework. What Jesus taught, first of all, is personal. Uh, it's called personal or evangelical, a call to people uh, to come into their individual evangelical evangelism uh, life of faith with Jesus, but there's going to be a transformation. And it's not a transformation of personality, as much as sometimes we would wish that would happen. It's a transformation of worldview. It's a transformation of belief. It's a transformation of action. So there's going to be changes taking place. It's not necessarily going to go into the core of personality. But here's what I think is going on. The disciples came to believe in the trustworthiness of Jesus. They put their trust in the trustworthiness of Jesus. So, again, as you already heard, as soon as Jesus tells them to go to this uh, town across, and there'll be a donkey, and it'll be young, and it'll be tied up, and the people will ask you about it, and you take it, and they went in obedience to Jesus' word, and they found things exactly like he had said. Why? Because they already had traveled with him for these uh, miles that had changed the course of history. Listen to how Joel Green says it. I think this is a fabulous sentence in, in one of his books. But he says this, It is worth remembering that discipleship as Luke presented it requires a reconstruction of the self within a new web of relationships, a transfer of allegiances, and the embodiment of new dispositions and sensibilities. A reconstruction of the self. That's what is going on here. That's the first thing that we notice. There is a reconstruction of the self. We are able to admit who we are. We're able to admit even that conflict that is uh, residing inside of us. We say something to somebody and we say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. I'm not really that kind of a person. Or somebody says to us, oh, don't act like that. Just act like yourself. Or maybe act like somebody else and not yourself. Um, but there's a difference here. And what we discover is that there is a need for this reconstruction to take place. Now, maybe you're playing with Legos and you want to make a figure and you said, oh, that's not quite right, and you take it apart and you put it back together. Maybe you're doing a crossword puzzle and you've put the wrong word in those empty boxes and you realize that after you've gone halfway through the puzzle and you have to redo it. There's a reconstruction taking place. Sue Berger the other day asked me what sports uh, teams or what sports we watch on TV, what events, and I thought a minute, and I said, well, there are just two, really. Uh, we watch the Warriors uh, basketball, and we watch HGTV. <laughs> and both uh, are kind of focused on reconstruction, right? I mean, the Warriors, is, they're kind of reconstructing their uh, team this year. And HGTV, I mean, there's competition. There's who's going to do it the best. They, they re reconstruct. The, the whole build, I mean, the, the frame is still there. But they tear down this wall, tear down that wall, and everything is different inside. So there's a reconstruction of the self that a disciple goes through as a follower of Jesus, who is the king, who is also the savior. Secondly, uh, not only is there this sense of personal relationship, in fact, 
it may not be the only or the most important, the primary issue that Jesus is there to do. I mean, he, Jesus is here really to, to bring in the kingdom of God. This is plural, the kingdom of God. There are going to be people and people and people in the kingdom of God. And so what we're doing here is we're understanding that there is a new community being developed. I love what Luke does when he talks here about uh, the disciples. He sent two disciples, but then there's a multitude of disciples. And who are these disciples? It's not just the 12. I mean, I think it starts all the way back in chapter 8 with the women who are coming with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who, who have funded his ministry. And then you have the Samaritans, and you have the leper who was uh, healed, uh, or the 10, actually, but one came back and thanked him. Uh, you have those who were ill and who were healed, and so forth and so on. You have all of this cadre of people. These are the disciples. It's kind of like the, uh, the TV show, um, what is the TV show? Uh, this is us. This is us. Look around. This is us. You didn't pick your brothers or sisters, your siblings in any sense, nor do we pick them in the church. But this is us. This is who we are. And by the way, that's not a modern idea transposed onto an old text. That was the true uh, first issue that the church had to deal with. What are we going to do with all of these Gentiles? They want to come into the church. And they had the Jerusalem Council, and they figured it out. There is this breadth of humanity that has been invited into uh, the reality of the kingdom that Jesus is creating. As the king who is the shepherd, and as the king who is the savior, he invites this motley crew to come in and be part of the new thing that he is doing. Not only is it personal, our discipleship, and not only is it communal, it's also societal. It is big picture image here. What the disciples embraced is the promise of a new future. A new future where even creation will speak out. I love, again, Luke's uh, image here. I mean, if we had this procession coming down in the descent, now coming down from the Mount of Olives, and they're coming down and it was silent and it was quiet, all of a sudden you would hear over here, uh, Jesus is Lord. And you'd look around and nobody would be there, and you heard over here, Jesus is King. And all of a sudden you realize those are the rocks. And you see a little kind of smile on one's face and one winks to you maybe. The creation itself is going to bring praise, joyful praise to God if we're silent. And so what's happening here is there is a new future. It's a new future that Jesus is beginning to create. As the king who is the savior, Jesus opens us up to the recreation of society after the way of peace, of healing powers, of witness. Now, there's one problem. In the, in the final two verses that I read, uh, the Pharisees say, hey, Jesus, stop it. Tell your disciples to stop it. Now, I like the Pharisees. Um, I didn't say I'm like the Pharisees. I'm, I probably should have, but I like the Pharisees. Uh, they're these religious people. They're working. They're hard-working uh, laymen, mostly men, I think, at the time. They're, they're laymen. They're working hard during the day. They're studying the law at night. 
They care about public morality. They care about Israel being uh, a godly nation. They care about all the same things that Jesus cares about. The problem with the Pharisees is that they have a different worldview of how that's going to be brought about than Jesus does. And they can't quite accept the way Jesus wants to bring about that new kingdom, that, that renewal of Israel, and the renewal of society at large. And Jesus is inviting all of us to come and be part of that new thing that he is doing. It's kind of like this. When, uh, when I was a senior in high school, I lived in Oklahoma City. My parents lived in Mexico City. I decided that I would surprise them for Christmas. So it was Christmas vacation. I had taken a couple of years of Spanish, so I thought I could probably negotiate my way, which was uh, naive. Um, but so I get on the bus, I go down, and we go through Dallas. This is, this is now a month after President Kennedy had been assassinated. And we go through Dallas, we go right by the book depository building, right by the grassy knoll, and it's kind of eerie. I don't really like it. And we keep going, we cross the border, we get to Mexico City, I arranged for a friend to pick me up, picked me up and came to uh, where my folks were uh, at the Wycliffe compound down there. Um, and the kids were out playing in the playground and we came through the gate and I got out and some of the kids said, Sally, uh, Sally's my sister, she's eight years younger, she, they said, Sally, uh, your brother's here. And she looked at me the, the life drained from her, and she turned around and ran as fast as she could up the steps over to uh, my folks' apartment. It's not exactly the welcome I thought I would get, <laughs> um, but there was no place for her to put me being there at this time. There, there was no category. She couldn't quite get it. She couldn't embrace it. And so she runs up, and so I go up and knock on the door, and sure enough, mom comes to the door, and we embrace, and Sally's there, and we have a wonderful Christmas. The problem with the Pharisees isn't that they don't want some of the same things that Jesus wants. It's that what Jesus is saying is so radical, what Jesus is doing seems to be so un, unorthodox, but also um, a, uh, in antithesis to what uh, God wants. They really think, I believe, that Jesus is a false prophet, leading the people astray. They're trying to lead the people in the right way, and Jesus, they think, is leading the people astray. And so don't let your disciples say these things about you. And Jesus said, you know what? If they don't, the stones will cry out. So this is an 80-mile journey that has changed the world. It has changed the world because Jesus, the King, who is also the Savior, has touched us personally, has created a new community of faith, and is in the process of opening the world to a recreation of society itself. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that we can be on this journey. We're so thankful that you invited us, along with every single person that has ever lived and will ever live, into this journey, this 80-mile journey that has changed the way the world works. Help us as we sing our own joyful praise so that the stones, the rocks don't have to, or maybe they join us in that chorus. We're thankful for Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and that he has called us to be his 
multitude of disciples that follow along the way. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together, if you're able, let's join our voices together in response to what we've just heard in God's word for us.